0: important question of your day hey is this being emo Today, to have Norman Brandon from Texas The Reason, New End Original, and don't forget Shelter. Um, so, uh, thanks for joining us, Norman.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> um, Quick little story. Out there Yeah, shelter, right? <laughs> or, did you think I was going to mention them?
1: <laughs> well, no, I mean, I. it's been so long, I sometimes forget. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, this... if you want to get conceded about it, you can add Resurrection and Fountainhead.
0: You're right. And
1: actually, seen. I was in 108 for like three months. You
0: were in 108? Oh,
1: that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, most people actually think that I played on the first 108 record because it looks like I did in terms of the lineup, but I didn't. I was just playing with the band at that time.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, Well, we we will add those in the text after. Um.
1: (laughs) It's okay. You don't have to.
0: (laughs) We pay by the character, so I might just – I'm just kidding. We don't. Um, quick story, I think um, I had the pleasure of making friends with the band Shift while I was in college Um, I actually ran their unofficial website, remember when those were hot Um, and I always dreamed of working at Equal Vision and funny enough, years later my dream came true and I got to work there um, which is kind of crazy, what was interesting about Shift in that time was Pathos EP was the first non-Krishna release for EVR and I think that's Yes, from uh, Steve, it told me that it was their first non-Krishna band. That was interesting, and I, I, I was like, really? That's crazy. So I think with you being kind of in shelter at the time, and the you know Krishna movement, and how for you in New York City, how did it kind of gel in the New York kind of hardcore punk scene? How did it kind of coexist? Um, the Krishna thing, yeah, because obviously it's kind of. I think that those kind of worlds kind of converged with it being, you know, hardcore and this Krishna scene, like maybe it, maybe it didn't mean, is it? Well,
1: I'll say this. I'll say this. So, okay. By the time the shift came around, actually, I was pretty like my relation with them was kind of just from hanging in the scene. And like, I lived at equal vision when it was just a loft on 24th street. So, but at that point I'd already quit shelter. And, uh, I was kind of just doing antimatter, um, but as far as the coexistence goes, I mean, I think that there's something to be said about New York hardcore and the Krishna movement in the sense that it always coexisted in New York. It's kind of, it's kind of breakout like happened. Yeah. Like with shelter in the nineties. Um, and that was kind of when I think straight edge kids first started, um, Adopting, whether it be the style of wearing, you know, the neck beads, or, or actually adopting the the philosophy or the religion or whatnot, um, but in New York, I mean, honestly, like I think that I was I knew about Hare Krishnas um, in the eighties for as long as I was, you know, from I me, mean, I started going to shows. Really, actually, um, I mean, obviously the Chromags, right? That's the big mm-hmm. one that everyone talks about, but I mean, the first singer. For Agnostic Front, John Watson, he was a Hare Krishna. His name was Jayanta Das. Um, You know, uh, there were, there's this old guy whose name was Dave, who was like this old early 80s hardcore guy who became Kasuba Das. Um, There's this other skinhead guy in the scene, Mark, and he became Manam Mohan Das. So, you know, there were a lot of hardcore, like, and not just hardcore kids, because these weren't straight edge kids. I think it's important to make the distinction also that in the eighties, a lot of the people who were attracted to the Harry Christian movement were straight up like skinheads and like street kids. Um, and so, and I don't know what the connection was or what that, that attraction was. I I guess I understood it from the straight edge kid perspective. Oh, here's this, you know, religion that's vegetarian and that doesn't do drugs. And you know I mean? It's kind of just like straight edge with God, but like, um, but in the '80s, it was it was very much a different thing. Um, probably my only guess is that the Krishnas were part of the fabric of the Lower East Side, just as much as the skinheads were, just as much as the drug gangs were, and um,
0: kind of everything and, was accepted. Kind of, I mean, New York City it's like everyone walks by you, every shape, color, and. Creed kind yeah, of
2: I mean,
1: thing. you know, obviously for us, like, for, like, hardcore kids and stuff, like, there wasn't, um, it wasn't like we were freaked out by their shaved heads or anything like that, um, and I remember, if anything, this is a, a huge connection, is that on Sundays, when there would be, like, CDs matinees, they would be in Tompkins Square Park giving out free food, and so a lot of times, you know, hardcore kids would wander to Tompkins Square Park and get free food, um, which, you know, we were all broke and hungry, so that was my first exposure uh, to the Christmas. Was actually in Times Square Park, um, eating. So, so yeah. So actually, by the 90s, I would say like that exposure. Uh, you know, I was already kind of um, I don't know. I wasn't jaded about it, but it was like a different kind of thing. Like it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't see it as a bizarre. Uh, you know, confluence of of cultural
2: um,
0: differences or something, and then with like the EVR loft and a lot of those early releases were Krishna related. It obviously didn't matter if those bands were on those tours or if it wasn't even related, kind of thing. It was all it all kind of played together because it wasn't a big thing because it had been there, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I think that you know, also when Equal Vision started, it was Ray's label, and for him you know, Equal Vision was like shelter. It was kind of a missionary project. He was, you know, a a fire death, Harry Krishna devotee who wanted to spread the word. Um, And when Steve took over, I think it was just a different thing. I mean, yeah, that was part of it. But I think Steve was also, you know, newly married and actually kind of moving into like this, you know, the life of, okay, now I have to somehow, I have a family now. So I have to somehow support my family and I have this record label, so I should do it this way. So I think the, the mission didn't change, but it had to be refined in order for him to kind of, uh, you know, live.
0: What's kind of cool too is he's actually started up a Krishna-only subset of Equal Vision. Um, recently, right. Um, which I right. love, I was like, the, how full circle, you know, like you've, you've got your kids going and everything's kind of, and then you can kind of go back and help again. Now he has it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Steve, <laughs> there could be a whole podcast about Steve. I love him. Um, sure. um Any, you know, I guess you've, I was reading another interview and you were kind of talking about music and I really loved, um, you know, kind of what you said. It was more about the community and the family and the music was the ritual. I really loved hearing that. And I think with with communities and touring and with all the te- technology that we have now, like everyone's holding up phones and, you know, you're instantly hearing about a band beforehand and you didn't have to drive to new Haven to hear them, um, to even hear a song. C- do you feel that that connection can happen again as closely as, you know, a friend that you have online now? I just, I, I struggle with it. Um, because I mean, yeah, I, I feel no. that it, no, like,
1: well, here's the thing, I mean, it's just got to, It's just gonna be different. Mm-hmm. There's no two ways around it. But I don't believe in like, you know, kind of like judging it by gradations of better or worse. It's, it's just, just different. different. Yeah. So like, you know, one thing that the internet kind of took away uh, from music scenes in general, I think, is a chance for regionality to develop um, in this kind of organic and sustained way. So the way that like in the 80s, let's say, or even early 90s, when we used to talk about a DC band, you kind of knew what their aesthetic was musically, what their aesthetic was in terms of how they dressed, how they acted at shows. It was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you talked about, a, they're, oh, they're from Southern California, you kind of had an idea what that looked like, what that sounded like. New York. Um, I feel like that, that area or or sorry, that era where um, the Texas of the Reason was in, I remember there was this kind of like talk when all the bands were getting signed, you know, at that point, everybody had signed. It was like quicksand and sick of it all and orange nine and into another had signed. And we were about to sign. And, uh, and I remember people, not necessarily even in the industry, but even in the scene. Talking about how this was like a New York moment, like New York was happening, and um, and not that all five of those bands sound the same, which we no, we probably don't at all, um, but at the same time, you could listen to those bands that I just mentioned and kind of find the thread or the aesthetic that kind of like kept them together. So what happens is, is with the internet um, now, it's like if a show happens in New York you know, someone in Singapore can watch it like 10 minutes later on YouTube and incorporate whatever it is that they want to incorporate into what they do. Uh, And while I don't necessarily think that that's bad, it does kind of create this sort of more of an international aesthetic as opposed to these kind of like strictly regional aesthetics that used to exist um, much more. Uh, identify a lead back in you know before the internet.
0: I mean, a band could literally have one show and everyone know their songs when they go out on tour.
1: Yeah, but not just their songs, like their whole being. Yeah, their you're, whole right, delivery, you're right. Their you're style, right. You're right. Everything. Like everything. What
0: they look everything. like. I remember yeah. going to shows, and this, uh, I get made fun of this a lot from my best friend, and this is totally embarrassing. I was trying to get to, in touch with Promise Ring to do an ID for my radio station in college. They were on tour mm-hmm. with Jets to Brazil. I went up to Blake Schwarzenbach, had no idea who it was, and asked him where Promise <laughs> Ring was. I, my buddy was like, did you realize how pissed he was? I was like, why? Who was that? He was like, that's Blake. I was like, shit. <laughs> I probably don't think he cared that much, but, still, but like, okay. he, he seemed annoyed. He seemed annoyed. So obviously, me being what eighteen or you know had no idea and completely flustered. But it was just—I didn't know what he looked like. You know.
1: <laughs> well, you know, but that's a, that's a, that's a good example of somebody who you know, like. Can, I mean, he's changed obviously a lot. He's been in New York for a long time now, but you know, when he came to New York. Uh, you know, to me, he still had this very, like, San Francisco, East Bay ethic, or not ethic, but aesthetic, that um, that was kind of, you know, it was a part of a place and a time. Uh, and those are the types of things that I'm, I'm interested in. I remember I, I did an interview with Ian Mackay um, for Antimatter in, like, 94, and he was talking about that. Um, he was talking about it in terms of how people danced at shows. And I thought that that was a really interesting thing because it was something that I was conscious of, but never really articulated that, you know, the way we danced in New York was different than the way they danced in Connecticut was different than the way they danced in Minneapolis in DC and Southern California. And now you can go on tour and everybody's going to do the exact same thing. The crowds will pretty much look the same. There's nothing that's unique to that city. Uh, and so that's, yeah. I mean, I do think that that's kind of a new development in terms, especially in terms of like underground and kind of like punk and punk related
0: scenes. This is—I don't know if this is an analogy or is something similar—but I see that with with sports and people and players' routines. Like younger players are emulating a player's like batting stance because they saw it on TV. Um, I feel terrible that this was coming lost on me no it's fine it's <laughs> fine I there's I just I was actually just watching some baseball and I realized that so many kids copy what that is and it's something from you know TV or something like that um, for me well, that it's is. Really- you know I mean
1: obviously yeah when when people saw smells like pink spirit video for the first time uh, you know that was a lot of people's kind of um, impression of what you're supposed to do at a show um, even though it was in the bleachers, that you know will carry on or you know carry into the show, and you know my friend Pete was actually in that video. Oh, nice! He's like a, he's an old hardcore kid, and there are a lot of old hardcore kids in that video. <laughs> so it's kind of, um, I mean, it's funny to me, uh, but and at the same time, like you know, I'm not one of those people who just kind of like complains like, "Oh, it was so much better back in the day." Like I don't really care about that. Um, I think that what's happening now is new and exciting for someone and I want it to be new and exciting for them. I want them to get everything they want out of the experience and be happy and psyched um, and make and hopefully, you know, somewhere in the mix, there's going to be this like new innovation that's going to really like you know, inspire
0: people. Well that's what's so exciting about me I think being in the music industry now too it's like there could be something that turns everything on their head tomorrow and sure. there isn't the fat cats in the corners anymore it's weeded out so many different people Um, that have, you know, in it for the different reasons. And I think it's the, it's the smarter person today. It's the person that's uh, able to adjust. um, And it's not this kind of send the record to radio and it's, you know, kids are making these changes and you can, it just seems like more people have a voice. Um, Right. I,
1: and yeah, and there is that, there's also just, I think, uh, you know, there is no more, like if there were ever like a model for how to do something, I don't really think there is one anymore. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of like how to get heard or how to make it or whatever. Like if there, you know, and I think that that's why most record labels, major and in indie alike, are, are kind of just swimming around going, well, we can try this and, yeah. and just throwing things at the wall and just hoping that it works once and maybe more than once if they're, you know, they're lucky. Uh, but, you know, so that has, I, I do think we're still, like, in the industry in this, like, transition period that I, I really don't see the end of. That's what's crazy about it.
0: Yeah, it's just every six months, something different's going to be happening off of it's that. It's just, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: Which absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh,
0: and we thought we thought
1: we were safe with MySpace. We thought, like, okay, this is it. <laughs> this is the new zone. And then that tanked, and it was like, oh man, that's what that was. <laughs> I
0: thought Makeout Club was it. That's 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 what I thought.
1: <laughs> I don't know what Makeup Club was. Makeout Club was good for, except for like just talking shit. On it was the pretty internet. much yeah. it's pretty much talking <laughs> shit.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much what it was. <laughs> All right, I thought like I missed something. No, no, you were right on. Um, right. I, I want to talk about the anti matter zine. Um it was a huge inspiration for me when I did like a little crappy zine in high school. Um, and now even this podcast, I mean, I just think the, when the book came out, um, and just the bands it interviewed, it was such a who's who of that time. Um, orange nine into another Jawbox, box rage against the machine, quicksand lifetime, Sam, I am snap case would go on and on. And I think, um, it was more of, you were like talking to your friends about experiences and less about, um, you know, the music itself, kind of just the experience itself um, of what was happening. And um, what kind of resonated... I think that had
1: something to do with what you mentioned before. Like, because I kind of, I mean, totally honestly, like, I lost interest in a lot of music at a certain time. Like, kind of at the same time that I started (laughs) Antimatter. Ironically, (laughs) it was like, um, I don't know what it was. There was just something where I was just, I was kind of turned off the music and I really was kind of more into like the ideas of music. I was really more into the ideas of Into Another, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. uh, of a band like that existing in our subculture uh, or like, you know, just the general sea change of musicality that was happening in that time, that interested me. It wasn't necessarily like one particular band or any of these particular bands, although I'm not saying I didn't like these bands. I liked them. Um, so you were already I, jaded. Of course. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, you know, like, I, it's it was hard, I think, for a lot of people at that time, uh, especially because it felt, it did feel like the scene changed overnight. Like, it felt like, you know, you, you had straight up traditional hardcore. And then one day in May, 1990, everything changed. (laughs) And people were just kind of finding themselves in the new scene, I guess, and scenes even there were like, it was the first sense that hardcore might get uh, bifurcated into like, you know, hardcores. Um, and, And that took a while to happen. It's, I believe that it has happened since. But um we were kind of in that middle zone where we were just holding on to each other tight, you know. It in other words, so for into another to play with split lip, it wouldn't that would have happened. It wouldn't have been a big deal. Uh and you know, for Snapcase to play with uh Jawbox, if that had never happened, uh it may have. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It
0: wasn't really I saw dashboard were, with Snapcase.
1: Right. Yeah. Dashboard was on a on a whole tourist set. Yeah. So there was definitely this feeling of like um bands that were just kind of like holding on to each other in terms of like you come from where I come from, who cares that our bands don't sound alike? That's not what it's about. And so so I do think that like the the direction that I took with Antimatter was less musical, um because you know, honestly, like, I did feel like the thing that was holding everybody together wasn't music. It was the ethics, the ideals, the uh, the, the the place, you know, the ways of being that, that we had. And uh, that's what we had in common. And so those were the things that I wanted to, to discuss and kind of talk about and explore in these interviews. Um, and I also wanted to basically... Just try to get, you know, deeper in the sense that, like, I was, you know, suffering from, like, crazy depression. I've, I've battled with depression most of my life. And, uh, and I think that that was another kind of harsh period for me. And so rather than me just kind of tell you about my life, there was something uh, helpful to me about getting other people to just spill their guts. And, 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 and it made me feel, uh, less alone.
0: That makes total and
1: sense. It was valuable to me. So, uh, the fact that I was able to kind of like put it out there for other people, I think, um, you know, not that I'm I'm saying it was some sort of like altruistic project,
2: but you know, in the
1: back of my head, I felt definitely like, you know, if I feel less alone, somebody else does too. And
0: mm-hmm. that's, that's cool. I'm that's awesome. Bad. Well, there's such a connection too. The, the the sort of you're you're talking of it wasn't about the music. It was that all these kind of bands were connected, and it was a, it was that scene. Um, and and people, you know, yeah, you. It's like, uh, you know, the Orange Nine guys are comfortable with these bands touring with them because they know that they came from a certain part, or they were all sort of in it together, and that just seems to, I don't know, kind of uh, yeah. s- strengthen numbers.
1: <laughs> it, it- I mean, that's the thing when we talk about, like, you know, even the bands that came up around Texas that we were touring with or that we were playing with at the time, um, you know, I think that there's this, like, fantasy that, you know, we were all, like, emo. Like, and I don't know really what that means in terms of, like, where we came from, but as far as we were concerned, I mean, like, I remember being on tour with Promise Ring and, like, uh, we were, like, Lasting, like, start today or something in, in the park in a parking lot or something, and like, or uh, you know, my one of my favorite <laughs> kind of funny stories about mineral was like meeting those guys in Texas and uh, and being like not sure like about them. Like, I, I we were just kind of talking, and I was like, hmm, um, and like, Carrie from Christy Front Drive had put out a seven inch of theirs and he gave it to me while when we stayed at his house in Colorado, and so. Um, And the only thing he said to me when he gave me the 7-inch, actually, he said, you guys use volume pedals, you'll like this. (laughs) So
2: I was like,
1: okay. So I still think about that whenever I think of Mineral.
2: That's awesome.
1: But but I remember, like, hanging out with those guys, and I I wasn't sure, like, are we warming up to each other? And then uh, their drummer, Gabe, like, lifted his shirt or something, or his sleeve, and showed me that he had a Warzone tattoo. And I was like, oh, dude. What's up? <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was like those guys were like completely our boys, like we' we're like, we're, you know we're tight, and we realized that we had this you know you grow up with those records, you grow up with those bands, you grow up with these ideas and, and the scene, and there's something that's you know hard to describe that you know connects you, and so, as far as I was concerned, what all of our bands were doing still kind of fell into this like. You know, if there was a label that I've, you know, I've always said this, that if there was a label that I ever was like, okay, you can use that, that's a good label, was post-hardcore. Because I felt like it yeah. was factual. It was just a factual label, that's all.
2: Yeah,
0: the, uh, the, the site's kind of like a, I call it post-hardcore emo, because it's so many of those bands kind of went into that realm, and it, and it fits both ways. I, I, yeah, I actually love that term more.
1: Well there's there's something about that term to me that's not descriptive about the music, but descriptive about the band, if you know what I mean. Like you can't say that like every band that's called post hardcore sounds alike. To me, all it means is that you came from this place and then started playing music that maybe ventured too far away from that place to call it hardcore, but you still basically kept the same ethics, the same ideas, um, the same aesthetics, like, you know, all of our aesthetics were still coming from hardcore places. We were, you know, we may have loved Britpop or like, um, whatever, but like we were all just like completely obsessed with like discord records and like, you know what I mean? Like touch and go. And those were the, those were the things that were really turning us on musically at that time were things that came from hardcore.
0: Yeah and it, it it's so funny you say the sort of the the hardcore and you know you find a warzone you know you see the warzone tattoo and you're like okay great I, it's happened it still happens to this day for me though a guy was fixing my computer at the Apple store he saw my iTunes and he was like oh wait you're into hardcore yeah hold on let me just get you a new phone you know like <laughs> and I was like yes you I know, know? <laughs> Like, <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. It's still, it still happens. It's,
2: it's, there's a
1: little bit of a tribal thing about it. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's it's the same reason why it's like it's not bizarre. It was never bizarre for us to play at a hardcore show. Like we played tons of traditional hardcore shows, um, and I would assume that the only people that were uncomfortable with that were people who didn't understand this this thing who weren't really part of the
2: tribe.
0: <laughs> yeah, what did you think about I mean, so many tours now are packaged where it's the same kind of band, um, you know, five bands in a row, four bands in a row. And I still I liked having the post-hardcore band or the band that was like an indie leaning or and then the super, you know, um, you know, super super just New York hardcore kind of band. It just I it was like what I was listening to anyway, and I feel like kids are kind of and I'm saying kids, but you know, they're kind of siloed. They're like, all right, well you like this? Well, go here. Um, and this is the right. tour. And I don't think a kid, I think a kid might like a top 40 band and might like thing. And it's, it just seems like they're siloing them and they're like, why aren't these tours doing well? And I'm like, well, cause you have the same genre the whole night. Yeah,
1: it's, I agree. I mean, you know, it's hard to say again, because it's like, I've kind of been out of the mix for a long time in, in, in that sense. Like, um, but you know, I I did feel the other night actually really positive. Like I really enjoyed the fact that um you know Underdog played right before us, and it's like, you know, I remember seeing Underdog. I'm pretty sure Underdog played the last show at the Ritz. Uh, it was like Underdog and Murphy's Law and somebody else. I think this was in like 1989 or something. But I I remember. I remember very distinctly underdog shows that I went to as a fan, you know and 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 so you know obviously, if you're a fan of a band, like whether or not Underdog has directly influenced me as a musician, I can't say, but they're certainly in my musical psyche uh they're certainly they exist in my in my consciousness uh when I think of um, all the music that I've listened to over the years and I like I I love Richie I love I like Underdog I think they're you know a great band and I think it was an interesting cool, uh, cool band to play with on that bill. I mean it definitely diversified things a little bit, which you know for me is a positive
0: development. Yeah, I want this. I want different people in the same room, you know. And it's, it's not the same, you know, tough guy or it's you know all the wussies with the backpacks. You know, I, I want. But it's everybody. also like,
1: you know, it's also kind of bucking on assumptions that, you know, even hardcore kids, that even the hardest, hardcore kids only listen to hardest, hardcore. You know what I mean? Like
2: yeah.
1: I just don't believe that. And I think that, you know, I was talking to Jordan at Revelation the other night and uh, you know, we were just you know, he was kind of like we were he was talking about the shows and he was saying how he just thinks it's really interesting how how much like Texas is the reason is just kind of preserved in some way, like with, with a, with a certain group of people. And the only thing he could think of was just like, you know, I think that, you know, you were kind of like this pivot band for a lot of people who maybe were like, you know, super hardcore. And then, you know, maybe got into your band and bands that were like you at around that time. And then, you know, you served as kind of like this catalyst for some sort of pivot in their life. And uh, and so they're very, they, mem- they remember that and, and they're kind of like, um, they're loyal to that for some reason. Um, I don't know. That's his hypothesis. But, you know, I do think that there's something to that as well. I do think, like I know that um, in that, what was that book that Andy Greenwald wrote?
2: Uh, uh,
0: nothing Feels Good.
1: Nothing Feels Good. Uh, I think he called us like, he called us like a gateway drug band or something like, uh, basically like saying like, of all the kind of quote unquote, emo bands from that time, like we were kind of, he was arguing that we were like this real gateway drug for like hardcore kids to like move into a different style of music. I don't know. That's hard for me to say from my position.
0: Well, from it's funny when Jordan's saying that and Andy kind of saying that's exactly what happened to me. Um, I actually remember getting your record Bringing it home. I was into hardcore. I I grew up in Vermont, so I'd see New York and Boston hardcore. Didn't get to see a lot of like big bands. So those were kind of, that was it. Sick of All, Sand Black Church, Tree, any of those hardcore bands. That's what, and I got the Texas record. I remember coming home, listening to it and kind of, and I've never told anybody this. Literally, I was like, I don't know. I was like <laughs> I was like I think hardcore. a
1: lot of people probably have that reaction.
0: <laughs> oh, come on. But no, it was that thing where I was like, I don't know. I'm not really even
1: kidding. I've heard that a lot actually. Because
0: really? I it was that thing I heard and I was like, Okay, I like this, it's heavy, but I'm into hardcore still. But it, I think it was like six months later I picked it up again, I was like, Oh. And it really was that sort of first time through, I was like, I don't get this. But I bought it because someone was like, you like hardcore, you're going to like this, blah, blah, blah. And then six months later, I was like, oh, I get it now. Um, and so for me, it definitely was that gateway. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, it's weird. It's like I said, I mean, I'm just kind of, any, any, everything I'm saying right now is like pure conjecture or speculation because it's really difficult from my position and my perspective. Um, you know, I just was, you know, the dude playing guitar, like I was, this was my band. This was, so I'm like looking at it from a different place. Um, and I'm, you know, I do know that like, um, you know, I think that there was a lot of conscious thought about, you know, what will the hardcore think Hardcore scene think about this. Like on my end, I think I don't know that you know anybody else in the band, but I, I do know that from my end, and I'm the type of person who thinks too much. Admittedly, <laughs> um, I was I was concerned, and um, and I was I was happy to be um, welcomed.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, def- <laughs> it's, it's 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 definitely stuck around. Um, you know, I was going to say, like the what was your thoughts sort of from this you know, show versus the one in 2006. I mean, I I actually, I left Thanksgiving dinner early um, and my parents were mad, um, but I made it. Um, and, you know, what was, is there any differences to it? Um, I mean, I loved that, you know, you announced one show in 2006 and then sells out and nothing, and then you have another one and um, to have this again um, six years later.
1: Interestingly, I would say that they were very different experiences. Um, like 2006 was like, I mean, 2006 was definitely a, a really like a mind fucky experience. Yeah. (laughs) Is that articulate enough? (laughs) Um, because that was really like, holy crap, I can't believe we're doing this. Um, and, and the shows themselves were just absolutely fantastic. The response was amazing. And, and just the fact that like, when they were over, I, you know, it was really like, that's when you expect the internet to just explode in negativity. Yeah. Um, They sucked. They weren't that good. (laughs) (laughs) That never happened. You know, (laughs) Um, people were really excited and, um, and if anything, disappointed that we weren't doing more. Um, But at the time, it just, it it wasn't feasible. Uh, We knew that that was all we could do so we didn't want to even hint at um, any other thing because at that time, that was just what it was. But this time, it was different for a number of reasons. Like, for one, it wasn't our idea. That's a, That was like, that. that's really like a huge thing. <laughs> um, so the way it went down was that basically we were asked to do this. We were asked to do it sometime in the spring, actually, and we kind of were like, no, no, no. And then in July, we were asked again. And this time, I think, uh, this was after the California shows happened and Chris had gone out to the California shows to play in Super Touch. And so he came back and was like, man, it was an amazing time. It was just like, the vibe was incredible, whatever. So we were, I'd watched the YouTube videos and it looked like a good time. and, And I was like, well, you know, okay, maybe I'm not opposed. And so, you know, we had this meeting. Uh, we went to an Indian restaurant on 6th Street and just hashed it out and talked it out. And uh, and so this was, I don't remember exactly when in July, but it was close to my birthday. And so uh, we decided that we would do it. And I remember uh, Chris Daly uh, texted Revelation from the table and said, "Wow, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. And... The next morning I woke up and it was like on the internet already. (laughs) And I was like, holy shit. I mean, it just got real, really fast.
0: (laughs) You're like, oh shit, we agreed to it. We're in it.
1: Yeah. Like there was no backing out. It was done. Like, and it just, within 12 hours, it got real. And so that was, um, that was a really crazy, surreal kind of experience because last time, we had enough time to kind of agree on it, kind of conceive it, sit on it for a little while, like before we made any announcements. you know there was a real kind of like slow process so that we were ready when it happened um, and I was concerned also you know like six years is is like practically another lifetime in music scenes, you know uh and I was like, are we?" You know, is anyone going to care this time? <laughs> and uh, so it was definitely, I think, a, pr- a process of trying to figure out, like, who? okay, so we're, this, we're doing this thing now. Who are we in 2012? And that was always the thing for us is that, you know, when we come out to do this, this type of thing, it's not, a, it's not an issue of, like, you know, trying to relive 1996. I think we're better now. <laughs> um, and we have more access to the things that we wanted to do in 1996 but maybe didn't have access to back then in terms of like really trying to create a cool experience for people who are coming to see the band um, and so uh, you know it was a matter of just kind of rediscovering ourselves as a as band in 2012 um, and what does Texas in 2012 look like and <laughs> And I mean, luckily, you know, I was told at the Revelation Fest that apparently many people were, uh, were saying that I look like I've been cryogenically frozen. How the <laughs> fuck did he look that young? <laughs>
0: that's awesome.
1: <laughs> so that's an awesome thing to hear as opposed to, man, he really let himself go. Well, like, did. You know?
0: <laughs> Norman, jeepers. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I feel like everybody in the band, we still look like a band. We still yes. look like you know, nobody is really, nobody looks like your dad yet. Yes. And, uh, and so I think that helps with, with being able to like do these shows and still, you know, we look like a band, we sound like a band. Oh man, we're a band.
0: So the key so, is we need to make sure you guys still look young. So you'll keep playing. Shows. <laughs> <laughs> no, no,
1: no. You just have to, you just have to catch us at particular points in our lives where it's is possible. But, but well, okay, so I should so I should kind of backtrack that. So one of the things that immediately we we were talking about, um, you know, when we decided that we would do this again, was that this was another opportunity to kind of finish something. Um, I mean, obviously everybody knows we broke up, kind of like at a. I mean, what, what could be at least in in we were, we were definitely on the incline. Um, let's just say that. I, you know, we don't know what our peak would have been, but we were definitely on the increase.
0: You mentioned that that last show that you had played before you broke up in Europe, you felt like, wow, this is crazy, everyone's singing our song, and we're done.
1: Right. Well, that was, that was the thing where it was just an issue of, like, whatever our last show is, it's got to be amazing. And so we, uh, we were playing in Wiesbaden, and uh, that was the last show of the tour. And it was the best show of the tour. It was amazing. And when it was over, it was pretty much like, we could break up right now.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, and we did. <laughs> yep. um, but, so yeah. So, I mean, I think that there was uh, there's always been this sense of unfinishedness with this band. Um, obviously, I think, you know, the big question mark for us had always been like, record that we started working on that we never finished and uh and so that was always a huge question mark i mean who knows like it could have completely isolated everybody in 1997 or 1998 if that came out we have no idea but i do know this the songs that we wrote back then uh still don't really sound like anything that people are writing today and to me that's a great source of like pride and achievement, like that, whatever direction we were trying to go in, we were definitely going in a direction that was ours. And, and, and I still feel that way about a lot of our songs, you know, like there are definitely influences in a lot of our songs and I can definitely point them all out. But, um, but we were always striving, you know, to, to get to this place where like, our like where our sound was as distinct as possible. You know, the that the influences were still there, but that it was very clear who was channeling this. But people, what
0: they would say, they would say, "It sounds like Texas." The reason, um, to, when that people would reference, it's like one of those bands that it's the first five bands you mention um, when people are talking about a scene or this that that time frame it's like you're mentioned because it's so different from promise ring or mineral. It's like, it got, it got, it was, it, it was mentioned. like that. And I think that's well, a really, you
1: know, the thing too is that when we were a band, I mean, we, we broke up right when promise ring kind of started really taking off. So, uh, so if anything, I mean, it's funny that promise ring to this day and us were just, we're so, like inextricable in in some ways. Like it seems like every time you hear one man's name, you hear the other man's name, not too far behind. And uh, and I think that's amazing considering that we found nothing alike <laughs> 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 at all. <laughs> um, but that's kind of what I'm, again, what I was talking about before. It was like, I met Jason from Promise Ring in 1993 when I was on tour of Shelter and his band nonetheless standing open for us in madison wow and and that was the first time we met and became friends and when i got their demo in the mail uh for antimatter um i didn't even know that jason was in the band i just loved the demo and so when we went on our first tour with shift um i called someone in Ma- i believe that we played with them in madison it could have been Milwaukee, but. Um, no, it was Madison. I called uh, this guy Joe who ran a record label in Madison to, to book a show there and I said, Can you put the promise ring on the show? I really love the demo And that was the first time we met those guys. So that was our first tour and then, you know, we did our last tour together. And I just think it's it is really great that, you know, our connection again is really like, you know, it was hardcore. It wasn't anything else. That's what it was. But we founded nothing
0: alike. Yeah. <laughs> But it is. You're, I mean, you you said it better than I did. It was like you mentioned Promise Ring. Two bands later, they mentioned you. Um, that's yeah. a, that's that's pretty amazing to have. <laughs> <It's> yeah.
1: A... <laughs> and I, and, I, and I mean, we love those guys still. So it's really and it's amazing that they're playing in 2012 as well. So.
0: And um, uh, they were a lot. Their last. I saw. I flew to Chicago to see them. Um, and it was an excuse to see a bunch of people and the New York shows and just to see the happiness. From them um, yep. was something that I almost enjoyed more than the show. Like, just look how much fun they're having. Like, fuck yeah. It's 2012, yeah. and these kids and people, like, even young kids who you never got to see them back then is, are now able to, and they're freaking out, and it just seemed like they enjoyed it. And that's what I love about these reunions. You're enjoying it. Cause that's, it's Which not, is
1: good because the last time I saw the comments room when they were a band, it was messy. <laughs> that last I year. mean I, it may have been the last show I don't even know but it was I was living in San Francisco and uh, so this would have been in 2000 maybe or somewhere in there um, in the first couple years of that decade anyway but they were playing a show and I remember Jason destroying his guitar at the end of the set and Whoa. I was just like what is going <laughs> on like <laughs> when did they become Kiss? Like, this is crazy. But um, he was just really upset. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm just going to leave. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was really messy. So it was definitely amazing and fun to kind of just see that original kind of, like, happiness it's all the rage spark.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I mean, I'm sure that last tour wasn't too fun with Bad Religion and people... Not stoked. and Oh, right. Yeah.
1: Well, that was, um, I actually was living with Jason in Chicago when
0: they did that tour. Oh, and so I there was I remember... another one. What's so, that? So there was another tour after that. Oh, I must've forgot. I forgot about that
1: one. Yeah, there definitely was. There definitely was. The bad religion thing, uh, happened towards the beginning of Woodwater. And I think, uh, then I saw them again at the end. Oh, okay.
2: But
1: it was definitely, um, that was a weird tour for them to be on. They knew it
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's cool i mean the i was going to mention some of the um i'd like to go back to texas but now that you mentioned you know chicago and san francisco um there was that point where you were doing a bunch of djing and you know got into techno music and um i i got exposed to, to this um a long time ago from some mutual friends and and sort of uh, it's It was interesting the explosion now of what it is and how it's on pop radio and how it's like everyone needs to be connected to it um it just seems like it kind of bore from so many different people and genres when you and obviously you need you needed vinyl back then and it was harder um so it right. kind of took a little more effort. What were your kind of th- thoughts back then, and just kind of seeing it now where literally I could be remixing a song right now while i 'm talking to you?
2: Well, I mean, in
1: terms of, like, the the mass kind of cultural acceptance of electronic music, like, I definitely saw that coming, like, in the sense that... in So in 2000... Well, in 1998 and to 2000, I was working at a record store in Chicago called Gramophone, which is, like, the, like, number one house music record store in the country. It's legendary. Um, And I was very very psyched. And actually what's funny about that is that the reason I got a job at gramophone was from hardcore.
2: <laughs> See, because, uh,
1: <laughs> I, I walked in one day in 1998 after I'd moved to Chicago uh, and I went record shopping. And so in order to um, use one of the turntables to listen to records and decide whether or not you want to buy them, you have to give one of the employees your ID and they hold on to your ID and they give you a stylus and you put the stylus in and you listen to the records. So, I I see this guy. He's playing some records up in the booth, and I give him my ID. He gives me a stylus, and then he looks at the ID and he looks at me and he's like, Antimatter? <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and we became friends, and uh, immediately. And he was like, "Oh, do you need a job? Let's, you know, here, you know." And so I started
2: working That's there awesome. um,
1: because of an ex-hardcore kid that became got to house music. But, um, <laughs> but so, yeah, so, uh, I was working there. So I, I was kind of like in the industry, so to speak. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I pretty much immediately got a job, uh, with primal records, uh, in Berkeley. And so, uh, at primal, I did two things. Um, one was that I established their, uh, website and this was their first kind of, uh, venture into online sales. Um, So I helped them kind of establish the store, and I basically managed the site and managed the store and and whatnot. And then uh, I also used my own money to start the record label. And so I started putting out records, um, this house and tech house records that I was really into. So uh, from that perspective, like selling the records um, gave me a completely different idea of like house music is a business. Um, but I was also, I remember having this conversation with, with everybody at Primal and just saying, you know, especially when we started to see sales were starting to decline. Things were starting to get a little weird in terms of like, you know, the MP3 or not even just MP3 at that time, it was controversial that DJs were using CDs like that was like, Ooh, I don't know, that's tacky, you know? <laughs> um, So CDs were kind of like threatening vinyl because now it was like all of a sudden, you know, obviously if you're traveling with a book of CDs, that's much easier than a crate of albums. So, um, so, you know, people were kind of getting down and I remember having this conversation and saying like, look, here's the thing. I think that if we stick this out, (laughs) I can see this kind of being, uh, bigger than it is only because the sounds that are in house music, the sounds that are in techno music, I hear these sounds on the radio. They're just not. They're in different forms. Hip-hop is using it. R&B is using it. You know, some pop is even using it. Um, and what happens is I think that once like culture, once like the mass culture gets accustomed to a sound, it's able to then hear that sound in different places a different way. And, um, I mean, I definitely think like at that time, hip hop was, was, was kind of really like taking the charge, whether it be, you know, like Neptune stuff, uh, or like Timbaland stuff or like, um, you know, there were a lot of records that I was hearing and even like, you know, what's that Missy Elliott song that sampled Cybertron? Um, I mean, they were just straight up samples of techno records where it was just like, and that was going back to the origins of hip hop and, you know. Africa Brambada sampling craft work. So we saw this happen before and I definitely saw this as a window of opportunity in terms of like people's tastes shifting towards electronic music. Unfortunately in the back of my head, I also kind of saw that as a shift towards the more commercial electronic music, which was always, which has always existed. And, uh, you know that's not really what I've ever been into. Like, I don't want people to get the impression that like the music that I was playing sounded anything like Dead Mouse or something. Like, or um,
0: David Guetta or something.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, that music always kind of existed, but that was definitely even in the underground, people would be like, "Well, yeah, okay, that's for a certain type of club that I probably didn't go to." <laughs> Like, I've often been asked by people, you know, how does somebody who's into punk kind of get into, like, house? And for me, my answer was always pretty straightforward. I actually think that they are very similar in a lot of ways um, in the sense that, um, you know, House Basic basically started uh, by a bunch of poor people who couldn't afford real instruments and basically went to pawn shops and just bought whatever um, rich people threw away which in this case were drum machines and analog bass machines and just things that um, didn't seem useful to the rock guitar guy who bought them and he could jam out in his room. Uh, And then they invented this entirely new style of music using these discarded machines. I thought that was amazing. And it's very much like, you know, how my perception of the street kids in New York even who were just playing like pawn shop instruments and, you know, banging away at it um also though i will say that my experience in house music was really formative uh and eye-opening in the sense that you know hardcore especially in the 80s for me was a very idealistic experience i had um you know very clear ideas of how i thought the world should be you know and um but when you went to a hardcore show, it didn't necessarily feel like a microcosm of that imaginary ideal world that we sang about and screamed along with all the time. But house music, was interesting to me, especially in Chicago, was that, you know, you listen to these house tracks and, you know, there are a lot of, like, corny vocals like that are like, oh, you know, uh, people gotta stick together, or, like, whatever, you know. <laughs> these kinds of, like, you know, unity and, like, Diversity and like all these types of things, but I remember uh, working at Gramophone and and kind of looking around once and just being like, just just among my coworkers, thinking like, okay, just in my coworkers, we're talking about a group of people that are of every race, immigrants, men, women, gay, straight, older, younger, like every possibility that you could, you could come up with uh, existed in this scene, trans, like everything. <laughs> and I, and I remember just feeling like how harmonious it was and, and how there was, there was no real deep and self consciousness about that. And, uh, and that was really inspiring to me because I felt like, you know, say what you will about house music. And I think that probably a lot of, kids have a lot of negative things to say about house music but you know looking around the store that day and thinking about that scene i really was like these guys are talking the talk
2: yeah no you're totally (laughs) right the walk
1: i mean it was really like this is what everybody is singing about like right here right now and uh and that was you know that also i think inspired me in a lot of ways
0: yeah that's awesome um and you in in san francisco you also uh rocked it with new under original right I did. Um, and that little super group with Chamberlain um, and uh, Mr. Jonah from far. And uh, was it a big move for you to do SF? Um, you know, coming, being in the East Coast and then kind of going a little bit farther in Chicago and then um, going to SF. I mean, was it a big move? Yeah. Was it kind of a, was it like, this is my next, you know, thing to break? Or did it just kind of happen? Um Honestly, I think that the problem for me in Chicago was that it was too easy to live there. There was no struggle.
1: <laughs> the, you know, the rent was really cheap. People are nice. Uh, people are nice. I had more money than I knew what to do with. <laughs> I mean, I, literally, like it was like I used to. There was a point that one year in Chicago where, like, just in vinyl, I think I spent something like twelve thousand dollars a year, and. I was just like, I, you know what? That's too easy. That's like that's too crazy. Easy. So I, uh, I remember um, Far had, had come and played Metro, and Jonah had kind of um, hinted that it was probably going to be over for them, and so that that was kind of planted in my head. And then maybe a couple months later, Deftones came through with uh, Quicksand and Snapcase, and. I was hanging out with Chino backstage and he, he mentioned something to me. Oh, I remember he had some, he's like, Oh, I got off the phone with Jonah last night. I talked to Jonah. You talked to him and I was like, no. And he's like, far done. It's done. Definitely <laughs> broken up. I was like, really? And he's like, he so said, is he going to do something else? He's like, you should call him then. You should call him. And I, like, <laughs> and I remember like, I left that show and I called Jonah that night and was just like, so what's up? Uh, And, you know, he told me the whole thing. And, you know, we, I think I always looked at Jonah as a very versatile vocalist. And so that was something that I was, I was interested in, in playing with, um, in kind of being able to work with this person who kind of like, you know, he's a little bit of a shapeshifter, I think. And, uh, and that seemed like an interesting creative challenge of some sort. Um, so pretty much I, I, I knew that I was going to leave Chicago. It was just a matter of how, and that became the how. So, um, I moved to Oakland, um, and then started this band. Uh, but I think, you know, New End was like another band that was really like, you know, I think we had a clear idea of what it was going to be and it wasn't that. And we didn't last long enough to make it what it was. Or what it was supposed to be.
0: I, I, I mean, I love the EP. I think there's some great stuff on the full length. I just think there was like a. I almost, I always wonder, like, what's the, what would have been if it was two records down line? What would have sounded like, or what would it have? Well, the kind problem of is the into? economics
1: of it. You know, like yeah. that was that was a clear situation where where economics got into the way. Like, I moved to San Francisco, and we just wanted to get going. So. It was really a thing of like, okay, well, here's this collection of songs. Let me see what I can do with them. Kind of switch it up. We'll use this to kind of like get started, mm-hmm. and then we'll do that record we've been talking about. Got it. Um, but it was just like in the course of supporting the record. I think a lot. There were a lot of things that were that were kind of wrong. But in the course of the supporting the record, for me, I definitely realized one that even in the like, what was it, like three to four years that I'd kind of been off the grid. Um, things had really changed in a way that was making me very uncomfortable. Um, I, there was a sense of commercialism that had just kind of run rampant and unchecked. And, you know, I'm not, again, like, I'm not like this guy who's going to sit here and like, you know, be Mr. Indie or whatever. But at the same time, I'm not the guy who's going to take a uh, sponsorship from an energy drink, uh, you know, and take money from them to go on tour and put their banner behind us
2: while we play.
1: And people (laughs) were doing that, and it was absolutely just insane to me. Like, I could not believe that not only were people doing that, but the kids weren't calling bullshit on it. And and so that really put me in a bad place. I, I felt like I was depressed. I didn't know who our peers were. Um, touring wasn't really fun. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, we did a tour with a Mercedes. That was fun, because, you know... know, Great dudes, yeah. Yeah, but, like, other than that, I mean, it was really hard to find my place in scene at that point.
0: It just seemed like that time was... There was so much change, and hardcore was kind of a little commercialized, um, and I felt like... Well,
1: at that point, see, this is the difference. This is the difference. I feel like that's when... You know, when I walked in, that was when it kind of lost all connection to hardcore. The bands that were playing didn't know the lyrics to break down the walls. <laughs> you know, like even subconsciously or like, you know, yeah. somewhere in the back of their memory. It just wasn't in their memory. You know.
2: Uh
1: I mean there were there were still some bands at that time who were who were definitely um from the scene. I mean when I met like Chris Caraba, uh, you know, he soft times is the reason in Miami, like he's an old hardcore kid. Say for gay, we're old hardcore kids. Um so there were still bands that were like, you know, that I could reasonably say they're quote post hardcore. But um but there were a lot of other bands. Like I remember playing we played with something corporate and there was like a there was some sort of weird thing that happened at that show too, where it was just something corporate happened at that show and I I remember just feeling completely disgusted and just being like I I need to you know I don't know I don't know who I am in in this
2: world right now
0: well it was like it was almost like the the I felt that the certain shows like these kids would show up and they had like crazy racks you know of like you know a tuner and they had all their equipment super new and I'm not saying that you know, that doesn't have to happen, but it just seemed like they had all their moves down already. And it was like,
1: well, you know what it was though? It wasn't, it wasn't so much that as much as it was, there was a sense of kind of keeping up with the Joneses. I think everybody really was like, um, almost in this weird competition to, to, to be like, who's the most pro.
2: Yeah. Who, you
1: know, are you on a bus? Are you, you know, <laughs> do you have, uh, <laughs> do you have, five techs with you, like, um and honestly, I mean, I think like probably if you talk to a lot of those bands now, they would probably see those days as like the days when we pissed our money away. Um but, you know, at the time that wasn't a game that I was just really interested in playing. Um and I didn't really have those same kinds of aspirations. Like I definitely felt like moving to San Francisco, for me, the aspiration was purely creative. I had a creative aspiration to make a record with Jonah, but we didn't get there, I think, for a lot of reasons. Um, That wasn't completely all the reason, but it definitely was putting me in a place where I didn't know that I wanted to be in a rock band.
0: Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Texas And then also kind of the future for you Because I think a lot of fans listening to these Love to hear kind of what's next But I wanted to kind of chat about um, Some of the songs about Texas And um, what I kind of call the money note Um,
2: Okay, what's that? So the money
0: note is when You're sort of so stoked on a song That it like hits you Either in the heart Or it makes you throw the finger in the air which I think is the ultimate compliment for this genre. So okay. an example is Nickel Wound with the song "Is There Anything Left for Me?" That's when the fingers go up. Um,
1: it's, it's technically
0: Nickel Wound. Nickel Wound. Sorry. I, oh, I, I wrote it wrong. <laughs> I wrote it wrong. See, this is like this is like a. I'm a TV reporter. I shouldn't read. I should just think. Um, <laughs> So uh, so that point of, is there anything left for me, and people finger point during that. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, if you think I'm crazy, that's fine. This is what this site's all about. Well, like, I, like I said, I
1: have no perspective about this, so <laughs> you're, you're totally, you know, you're as crazy as anyone else.
0: Perfect. Um, and then I think another point is, if it's here when we get back, it's ours, that song. The drum roll right before the chorus, about a minute 30 right. in, the point where everything wants to stage dive. Um, right. <laughs> that's which is, again, a fantastic breakdown, by the way. Um, uh, and then I think the other one is a, a Jack With One Eye. I think that opening riff, um, if I had thought that up, I would have probably played it for hours and not let anyone else play anything else. <laughs> um, I would love to kind of hear about how that song came about.
1: Jack With One Eye? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Jack With One Eye, I remember very specifically, like, started in... My bedroom in the Equal Vision Loft, like on an acoustic guitar, and it just was that riff. Um But you know, Texas had this kind of interesting thing about it, like where when we were really like together and and on, um, you know, it was it was pure. Like when I think about like the songs actually being formulated into like the songs that you hear on the record. Um, that moment feels just felt just very intuitive always, and I remember like Jack with one eye specifically. I used to do this weird thing um, when I wrote music, and I guess I still do, but now I don't. Since I'm not writing music for anybody in particular, like, and I'm singing it easily, like, I don't have to do this anymore. But when I was just writing music or or things, um, <clears throat> a lot of times I would. I would kind of, like, pair it with this kind of, like, thought in my head. And (laughs) this sounds stupid, but I remember Jack with One Eye. The thought in my head when that riff first kind of came out was, um, this may mean nothing to people who don't live in New York City. But if you've ever, like, stood on the corner um, waiting to cross the street and, like, um, like, one of the New York City buses go flying past you really close to the sidewalk
0: on purpose.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like, and you're just like, Holy shit. Like that is so close to me. And it's just like so big. And (laughs) if I moved like two inches forward, I would just get completely (laughs) taken out. And, and, and again, this might be me sounding crazy, but, um, I feel like, I don't know this has happened to me, but i I'm definitely the person who's like thinking, What if I just step forward?
2: <laughs>
1: you know, or like you know when you're standing on the the uh the the subway platform, what if I just step forward <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you I never do, do you never do, but you always have these like you know black ideas, these dark thoughts, mm-hmm. you know these kind of like um I don't know, maybe i'm too depressed and that's where my brain goes but like, <laughs> obviously it's nothing i would ever do but that thought for some reason was the thought that that i always associated with that rest and uh <laughs> and so that kind of that thought was kind of like the thought that like really kind of like propelled the music for that song for me um i don't know why i love that. so uh and I do that, but I, I've done that a lot with a lot of songs. But for some reason, that thought is, is, is very vivid, and that connection is very vivid to me still for some reason. Um, but, yeah, so well, I remember bringing Jack with one eye then, like what I had so far, to the rest of the band. And it was just, that was one of those practices that I always, you know, there were two practices of all the practices we had that I remember the most, and it was the Jack with my eye practice and the first practice. And the Jackets, when I practice, um, I remember because that song literally just happened. And, it, you know, like, whatever I brought in, it was like we were all just completely intuitively doing everything together. Um, it, it felt like we barely worked on it. And it just was like, and and I remember just hearing it back and being like, I fucking love this song so much. And I feel like it's still my favorite song. Like, that's the song that when i listen to when i listen to that song i can actually kind of step outside of it as if i didn't even play it and just really like appreciate it and that's awesome well love find, it.
0: the other thing i wrote and i didn't read this because i got nervous when i fucked up the song and or fucked up the, <laughs> the song cuz i felt like ron burgundy um uh it's i wrote that song seems so simple you know um and has such a great crescendo to it so it seems like it got to such a great place as a band putting it together, but it came from such a simple place. Um, Yeah,
1: I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I also think that what I think, one thing about Texas is the Reason songs in general is that um, they're not, they they kind of always feel like songs in the sense that, you know, we think of songs. (laughs) But when we think of most songs, you can usually tear it apart into verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, and, like, when you think of Jack with One Eye, it's not really like that. Yeah. Like, what, what's the chorus to a Jack with One Eye?
2: There but, isn't. It right? Just,
1: there isn't it... really a chorus. <laughs> no. And, and, and I think that that... But at the same time, you know, it's a very satisfying, complete song, and it's a memorable one. And, you know, that's, I'm, that totally sounds terrible, like shooting my own horn or something. But, like... Um, But I do think that that's one of the things about this band that I think is special still when I, you know, when I'm trying to figure out why people still care. I do think that it has something to do with the fact that, you know, whether it was accident or on purpose, you know, we were definitely trying to put together music that wasn't necessarily uh, recursive or formulaic, um, but just kind of like we just went with it. And, and, and kind of wherever it took us, that's where it was. And that that's a perfect song for
0: that. Yeah, and I think that the song, and I mentioned, you know, the, the money note again. I mean, it's that point where you listen to that song and you're like, fuck yes. And I think you guys had so many of those songs that if it was antique or if it's here when we get back, it's ours and just it, you had these moments in those songs and there was, it. I felt there was some hardcore in it too because there'd be like a little bit of a breakdown, but it wouldn't be you know, like a breakdown, but you could tell that that's where it came from. Um, Or if it was, you know, a chorus. Well, maybe in the the
1: earlier stuff, but I definitely think, like, the the influence that we... One thing that happened, I think, at some point in the Texas is the Reason trajectory that really changed everything was uh, this kind of realization of how much everyone really loved The Beatles. (laughs) <laughs> and, like, that sounds crazy or dumb or whatever. Of course, everybody loves the Beatles. But, you know, there was something about the Beatles to me that was, like, and and to everybody. I think everybody maybe had a different thing that they loved about it uh, or loved about them the most. But to me, uh, the thing that I really loved about them was that when they wanted to do this kind of, like, anthemic thing, they were fucking just un. You know, like they, I felt like they originated that kind of, uh, <sighs> there's something, okay. So when I think, yeah, I mean, he, he, that word is so hacky now.
0: It but, is, but I, I feel like it's like, you know, I feel like Coldplay sold their soul to like write some of those songs, like because of it's just that so epic and they're kind of like U2 sort of that. Well, I'll
1: tell you, I'll defend Coldplay before I even defend U2. Like, I actually think Coldplay write some pretty amazing songs. No, I like, agree. I just,
0: I always joke that really... they sold their soul for that. Like, I was like, how do you keep yeah. writing these fucking hooks?
1: <laughs> well, there, yeah, there is this, this there is this kind of thing about them where you're just like, God damn it, you fucking did it again. <laughs> and, it's, and it's four
0: notes, you fucker, and it's in pentatonic. How did you do yeah.
1: that? Well, you know, I remember I uh, they did this show during the Viva La Vida uh, release like when that came out. They played Madison Square Garden for free. And it was like, just send us your email address and we'll send you two tickets. So I was just like, okay, why not? So I sent them an email address. And uh I got two tickets. I was like, wow,
0: awesome. <laughs> Someone that was so, into hardcore uh, must have picked them. What's that? Someone that was into hardcore must have picked them. i yeah.
1: just <laughs> <laughs> Well <laughs> so, so this is this is what I find interesting. So my boyfriend who is uh he's also a musician. He used to play in a band called Spent, who were on Merge in the 90s. Um, so, he, you know, we kind of come from some other places. We knew who we were. We've been together for like seven years now. Um, but so he went with me and he's not a Coldplay fan, right? Like he, if anything, he kind of went almost begrudgingly. Um, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I really think that you know, I, and I don't know, maybe I'm dumb, but I really think that you're going to get something out of this, whatever this is. I just feel like whatever this band is doing, um, I just can't not like it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so we went to the show and, um, and sure enough, like at the end of the show, he was like, I get it. Like, I can't not like that. That wasn't, there was nothing not to like,
2: <laughs>
1: you know, he's like, whether you think it's it's put on or whatever, they just do it really well. And they know, I think the thing that really impressed them was like, you know, playing Madison Square Garden and knowing how to work a room of that size, like to where, like, you know, we weren't particularly close to the stage, but they somehow made us feel like a part of the show. And I really, you know, I took something, I take, I take something from uh, experiences like that because, you know, even on this scale that we're at, you know, Uh, playing these shows in New York, for example, you know, we still kind of went all out. Like, you know, if you went to the rest of the Revelation Fest, you probably noticed that no one else had the light show that we had.
2: That's because we had our own
1: designer. (laughs) 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 Because we're like, you know what? Lights matter. (laughs) You know, we had our own projection guy. He brought in his own equipment. He did everything himself. It was all like, you know, we had our, we were like, you know what? If we're going to do this, let's do it. Let's make it a thing. Like, let's not just show up and play the songs and and, and I'm sure that that would be fine too, but like there's this element for us where we just really want to make it a special evening, uh, for people. That's always been, you know, in 2006, that was what we wanted to do. And, And in 2012, we just kind of like kept upping the game and we're just like, let's just do it. Like we're in a position where we can actually, you know, we don't need, uh, a ton of money, you know, let's, let's put the money back into the production and, and make like a
2: memorable
0: experience. That's awesome. Yeah. I got to work with Coldplay and another job and just to see, you know, the work ethic and sort of, it wasn't, it came from the right place um, from the limited re- uh, interaction that I had um, and to see it performed live and, and the sounds and what they were doing. It was I, I, that's interesting that you took that away of being like you were whatever up in the rafters in section 400 but you still felt and that's probably that's a gift um i yeah. think <laughs> for someone to be yeah able to no do
1: that. i mean our uh our old we've been friends with this guy flip he's our uh, he was our booking agent back in the day in uh you know in the 90s and since then he's become this like mega booking agent in Europe. Like, he books Kylie Minogue. and wow. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> so he's like, he's like for real. He books news and he books, you know, whatever. But, um, he went to this Coldplay show before he came to New York for our shows and, uh, and he was like, have you seen the new, the new uh, Coldplay, like production or whatever and I was like, no. And he's just like, I mean, he's like, it's insane. He's like, I get it. It's sort of cheap. You know, everybody got this thing that's kind of like I don't know if it was a glow in the dark thing or something that you put around your wrist, Yep. but apparently at some point in the show, it just everything lights up and all of a sudden you're, you're part of the light show. And I was like, you know, he was like, that's just so simple, but it's so works it When worked. that happened, you felt like euphoric. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta get, you gotta get it to him. Like, they're definitely like thinking about this shit and you know, I appreciate that. Like I don't always, I didn't, even when I was uh, a kid and it was 1980s and I remember like the thrash bands used to be so adamant, uh, you know, reactionary against the glam bands, you know, like we don't need to get dressed up. We just wear our t-shirts and jeans and go out (laughs) there and rock, you know, and they would be so like, proud of that but you know even as a kid i was like look i may like your music better but you know let's just let's just be serious i mean if you also go to a concert
2: to have a fucking good time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not just, like, if I just want to listen to the music, I could go
2: home. there are
1: ways to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's kind of about, like, you know, trying to, to do something a little extra. You know, for for whatever you can afford to do, why not? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I think that also these songs that we played, um, the songs that would have been on the second record. So, okay. I should say something about this second record. Yeah. We Cause writing, you need so to, people are
0: asking me about it. People are asking well, me about that record. <laughs>
1: okay. So basically like conceptually, this record was really starting to form up. And so you've heard us use this term. It is happening again a lot. And, uh, that was what the second record was going to be called. Um, we had decided straight up in 1997, the second album was called It Is Happening Again. So that was kind of how we worked. Like we would write song titles before the songs existed and then just be like, that sounds like a nickel lounge. So, you know, <laughs> and that was kind of what we did. We did things in advance. Um, but the the first, so the first song that we knew would be on the record was definitely going to be Blue Boy. And our, our intention was always that Blue Boy was going to be re-recorded for the album and that it was going to get like, you know, this big production that that it deserved, and it never did, unfortunately. Um, The second song that we wrote was Every Little Girl's Dream, which is the more epic of the two, uh, of the other uh, two songs. It was that's a song that I will say like straight up, 100%, like, I mean, to me, there's a real kind of like Beatles subconscious going on in that song. Um, There's just something about it. And, you know, I don't want to say too much about that, but I think that um, I wasn't, it wasn't even just like, it was something that other people noticed at the time. I remember somebody saying it to me and and, and me being like, Um, but that song even lyrically, it's almost like a mini narrative. it's very cinematic. there's a lot of lyrically it's different than every other Texas song that was ever written. I think it's just completely on a, on a on a diff, in a different place and I think that song was the one that was like for us like that was really like the beginning of the album. We were just like wow this this is it. this is the direction and And when rock and' roll was just a baby, that song was. Kind of an interesting, weird experiment in terms of, like, it still had that kind of, I guess I put it in the family of, like, the groove songs that, that we have, like, you know, like Magic Bullet or Dressing Cold or something like that. Um, but it was another song where it was, like, uh, um, stylistically, it felt to me like a pop song, but structurally, there's no chorus. So, <laughs> uh, so the, we seemed to do that quite a bit. Um, And it was always kind of a thing that I actually used to say when major labels were trying to sign us and all that stuff, you know, I would always be like, look, I get that you like the band. That's cool. But I just want you guys to know that like, if you want to get on the radio, you kind of need a chorus. And we don't really do that. (laughs) (laughs) At least not like on purpose. So if you're going to ask us to do it on purpose, it's probably not going (laughs) to happen. And, you know, and every major label would be like, no, oh, no, we don't want you to, just stay the way you are. Just You know, we don't want you to change at all. And i will be like, okay, you know, so. Um, but so that was the direction that it was going in. And I felt like those three songs were really kind of like a capsule of what Texas is the Reason would have been. And, uh, and, and I think that the reason why we brought those songs out to play again in 2012 um, was because we wanted that, we want there to be some sort of record these songs because we still adore them, love them um, and believe that they're probably among the best of what we did You know, I think it's funny also that we're still calling them new songs I
2: mean, it's hilarious
1: <laughs> <really>. I mean, <laughs> these songs are older than some of the kids who are listening to them <laughs> um, but that said, again, like I said before, I really feel like for these songs, I, I mean, for us, they really stood the test of time. But also that sense of like listening to them again and saying like, you know, this doesn't really sound like anything that anyone's doing right now, and feeling like that's awesome, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I I think that that's um, that's something to be
0: proud of. I so. agree. And then I would love to hear. Um, someone asked on Twitter. We had a, someone asked on Twitter about um your your solo material and. Uh, if there's any yeah. if there 's any plan for it and uh, anything for that
2: well you
1: know over the years i 've kind of put little things out on the internet, um, just random songs here and there
2: uh,
1: but I guess you know it 's hard when I think of unfortunately when I think of putting out music i 'm still kind of in that old old school mindset of like if I put something out people are going to expect me to play and <laughs> score and do stuff. And, and I don't want to do that. So I just wind up not putting it out. I had this insane like period of creativity, uh, the year I met John, my partner. And, um, it was an insane year where like, I couldn't stop writing songs. And I probably demoed 25, 30, like 30 real, like songs that I was really like, holy crap, they're all really good. (laughs) And I was, I was just going crazy. And, you know, they were like these complete songs too, which was also driving me because, you know, for so long, um, I was the guitar player. Um, so I wrote music, but I never wrote lyrics. I never wrote melodies, you know, like that was always Garrett or Jonah or whoever. And, um, and so this was the first time where I was actually learning how to sing, learning how to write music for my voice. Um, and I think that that was something that I, probably a lot of guitar players can relate to. in uh, when they try to start singing their own songs, which is that a lot of times you don't realize that when you write music before you're writing music for other people's voices, not yours. And, um, And then, so what happens is when you try to sing to these songs or this style of song, like if I tried to sing to a song that maybe I had originally envisioned Garrett singing, my reaction would probably be like, oh, fuck, I can't sing, you know, like, because it wasn't really made for my voice. But so it was about learning what my voice was, what it could do, and then learning how to write for that. And once I figured it out, it was like all of a sudden I could record four-part harmonies that sounded good. And I was like, wow, like, I think I can sing. So it was, <laughs> so it was yeah, it was really, it was really great. And, I, and some of those songs I just feel like I'm still like, super in love with. And so over the years, I've written more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's just this weird thing where um, I have this, like, mental block about it where uh you know maybe someday I I will kind of put it on Bandcamp and say, have at it. Mm-hmm. It's free. You know, like I don't know. Um I could very well wind up doing that. Um but I definitely couldn't foresee doing it in any sort of like traditional like record company kind of way. And and as far as like performing any of it that's that's like some Star Trek shit. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) Like the idea of getting up and playing something by myself would be like such a new, a new thing that I don't, you know, I'd have to really like gear up.
0: I would love to kind of find out, um, you know kind of what you're up to right now um you had mentioned um you know teaching and um both my parents are teachers and I and you know couldn't think of a better profession um any kind of stories or feelings from that um that you've kind of had on this on this career
2: well
1: it was the career that I always wanted um except I dropped out of high school (laughs) so that kind of put a big roadblock (laughs) into my career path um I didn't drop out of high school because I was dumb or having trouble or anything like that. Like I dropped out of high school for pretty much purely social reasons. Um, You know, I was a misfit. I was in punk rock. Um, I think actually at that point when I was 15, I was a skinhead. So I, (laughs) (laughs) so I wasn't the most popular kid in school. And, uh, but so, you know, I kind of was just like, I can't take this anymore. My parents had moved to the suburbs as well, which was a big problem for me. I wasn't really doing very well there. And so I moved back to the city, um, 16 years old, high school dropped out. And I was pretty much like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to be a teacher. What can I be? Um, and so there were only two things I knew how to do. I was like, I think I can write okay. And I can sort of play guitar. And so I just took those two things and then kind of did my best with them for the next 20 years. Um, and I did okay. <laughs> you know like i, I I'm amazed actually at, at how well that worked out for me. but um in 2005 or six or so, I started to kind of feel at the end of my rope a little bit with, I knew that music was just, I didn't want to do it for a living anymore. Um, I went on a tour with Gratitude, actually. I played for a couple months with them. And uh, and I remember that tour, I kind of called like, you know, the Moment of Reckoning tour, where it was like, I'll know after this tour if I really want to ever be on tour again. (laughs) And I got off that tour and I was like, I really don't ever want to be on tour again. So... Uh, that was that. And then it was just like, okay, well, I'm coming back. Um, what am I going to do? And it took a while to actually get, uh, the courage, I think, to go back to school. But, um, interestingly enough, I was having uh, a conversation about this with Alan Cage from quicksand, Alan. And, uh, and so Alan's one of my best friends and, uh, you know, we talk about life a lot. And, uh, and I think he was also kind of going through something at his job where he was like, you know, I, I I could totally teach math. And I was like, I could totally teach English. I was like, let's do it.
2: That's awesome. Let's go to,
1: let's go to school. So he's like, yeah, let's do it. And then he never signed up and I did. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and
1: uh, so I was just like, well, whatever, I'm going to do it. <laughs> And so I, you know, I started from scratch in college when I was thirty-three.
0: Wow! And
1: uh, yeah, it was really crazy, and um, that was a really bizarre experience, but it was also fairly uh, helpful because, you know, I was about to, you know, I was going back to school to enter a p- uh, potential career in which I would be in school with kids this age. Um, and what's kind of great about being cryogenically frozen is that um, they all thought I was their age. Oh, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> so I never felt like the weird old guy in the class. Although whenever I would like participate in class, people would always be like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was like, uh, I remember actually my first year, this girl had, was really like, I could tell she was crushing on me. And she finally kind of, like, said something to me, and I was like, oh, my God, like, you're barking up the tree, Wrong tree, for so many reasons, you have no idea. <laughs> this is a different tree.
0: <laughs> this is a different tree.
1: You know, and I was like, number one, I seriously am probably old enough to be your dad. Number two, like, I'm gay. <laughs> Um, and she was like, you know, she was a little embarrassed, but she took it well. And, and we, we, were, we were friends, but it was cool. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I finished my undergrad in three years. I just went straight and just went for it. And, uh, and then I started my master's and just barreled through that. And so now I, I, I wound up teaching in, at the college level. Um, I'm going to probably start, uh, applying for PhD programs, um, at the end uh, or at the beginning of next year, <clears throat> and start doing that, because I just figured you know like I waited this long, I might as well just kill it, go all the way through, get the highest possible degree I possibly can get um, and there's something you know kind of cool and and middle fingerish about it, you know, like being. A high school dropout one minute. Like the last time I played with Texas is the reason I was a high school dropout and now I am a college lecturer. I love that. You know, and that was just in six years, uh, six year window. So there's something kind of great about that. And I think there's also like, you know, you, everyone I think of us, every one of us still has like some baggage from their, uh, teenage rebellion, right? And, uh, and I remember that there were teachers at my high school when I was dropping out who who gave me that whole like you'll never be anything line. And uh and so it's nice to just be like wow, my life has been really amazing since I left high school. I'm really happy that this all worked out and I hope that it, you know, you know, thinking about talking to these people who said that to me that I'm just like I really hope that the last you know 30 years have worked out as well for you.
0: Yeah. Uh <laughs> well, you know it's funny, Nora, Norman. I I see a similarity, uh, and I don't know if you ever thought about this in the song structure of "Texas the Reason" and "Your Life," because you, because you're you didn't do verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. You you're doing different. You know, you're doing the bridge first, and then you dropped out. But then you're going back to school now. You kind of did it in a different way, which is nothing wrong. So you both. You had an epic song and you've had an epic life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm definitely, look, I mean, I definitely am one of these people who will tell you.
0: There is no um, set way to do things. Not just that there is no set
1: way to do things, but that there is no, I think that people get caught up in this thing of what am I going to do for the rest of my life? That's something that I hear so many people say. And I'm definitely the person who's going to say, you don't have to make that decision. You can change your mind at any time. You can always go back and do something different at any time. I mean, I was at a, a New Year's party a year ago, and I'm talking to this guy who worked in the fashion industry. And, you know, he was 40-something, and he was like, I'm trapped. I can't do anything else. And I was like, you're in the fashion industry. Let's look at Tim Dunn. The guy is, like, 70 years old. And, like, <laughs> you know, he reinvented himself completely. You know, he went from just being, like, a college you know, a uh, professor of sorts to, you know, a media mogul and, you know, a CEO of Liz Claiborne. Like, I mean, come on, man. Like and you can do whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do. it. You don't have to make these decisions for the rest of your life. And I think that fucked me up even with Texas is the Reason back in the day. Like, I think that, you know, uh, I thought about this band as the rest of my life. And I think it put a, an undue pressure on us. That definitely affected the way I treated the band. That definitely affected our interpersonal relationships, and that definitely had something to do with flaming out so fast. And maybe if I didn't have that perspective, our story would be a lot different.
0: It's it's such a good way. I mean, it's totally true. It's just that you know people are like, oh, I can't wait for Friday or whatever. It's like, well, what about what are you doing right now? You know, like what's, what do you, what are you, what are you connecting to right now? Because that's what's happening. It's not yesterday. It's not tomorrow. It's right now.
1: Um, And I just don't think like that anymore. I mean, you know, even with academia, I love academia. I love that, you know, that I can be in a profession where like my job is to think and help other people think. That's amazing to me. Um, But, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, like, well, this is it. Now, this is the rest of my life. Because I really don't know. I can only kind of just do what, you know, follow my news now. (laughs) Do what turns me on right now. And be happy doing that. And, you know, if in the future something else happens where music calls me back or all of a sudden I decide I'm going to be a lion tamer (laughs) or whatever it is. I'm totally prepared to do that. I'm totally down. I'm not going to miss out on that opportunity. And I think that this also might be coming from the perspective of somebody who was hit by a tow truck and survived.
0: (laughs) Yes, I read that in an article, which I had, I didn't, I don't, I didn't remember. And I feel horrible. I was like, wow, I forgot about this. Like that, that obviously puts a lot of things in perspective quickly.
1: (laughs) My life, my life very much changed in October of 2003. And, and I think that so much about my life changed so much about my point of view and and my worldview changed at that time so um this is probably just you know it's part of the tip of the iceberg in terms of like the things you think about when you can't move for like six months
0: yes (laughs) wow well i just think i i love how positive you are and um i i think i've I've a lot of these, you know, talks. I I get a lot out of it. Either I learn about things, and or I you know hear about a, a song I didn't hear about. But I think with you, Norm, I just I've seen such a great perspective on things, um, and just you know knowledge um, on a lot of stuff that uh, I didn't really see that way. So that was really awesome.
1: It's always ongoing. <laughs> I may listen to this, you know,
0: in next year and be like, man, I didn't know shit. Well, then we'll just we'll we'll just have to do a follow up.
1: <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, maybe, maybe the next time I get hit by a tow
0: truck, I'll have some. No, please, no. or 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 when you decide to step out in front of the bus.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say actually. I swear to God, I did not step out in front of that tow truck on purpose. <laughs> I awesome. had the right of way. He came at me. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Um, Well, Norm, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. I mean, your zine and all the music stuff that you've done has shaped, I think, a ton of bands and continues to be mentioned time and time again. And I think I speak for everyone listening that, you know, please don't stop making music or creating. Um, I think each time it's given something memorable and you can't really ask for anything better than that.
1: Well, I do. I mean, you know, if I can take this opportunity also just to kind of thank everybody, including yourself. But also, I mean, just, again, like last week was really overwhelming um, for me and for the, for the entire band, really. I think like we were having our own mini panic attacks about it. It, it was, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's not just this feeling of gratitude for the people who have been around since back then, but it's also that feeling of like just marvel at the people who weren't around then and who just connected with the band in some way, uh, you know, since then. and, you know, I can actually kind of, um, if you'd indulge me for a second, hang on. I'm, I'm going to, there was, the other night, I was reading the internet, as I often do, and uh, I somehow stumbled across this guy's Tumblr. Uh, and I found this post that he wrote the night of the Urban Plaza show. And it's just a short, like, three-sentence post But it really, like, killed me. Um, And, you know, if there was an email address on his website, I probably would email him. But this is what he wrote. So the title of his post was, Tonight Was Pretty Surreal. And then he says, Texas is the reason was phenomenal. Words cannot describe how overwhelmingly incredible it was to see them live in my lifetime. This is a moment that I would love to relive over and over again without a doubt. And that was like the entire post. And
2: when I'm reading his
1: bio, I'm just like, you know, he's 21 years old. Wow. He was, you know, he was five years old when that record came out, <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know, like uh, it's just this real feeling of just like, I love that, that music is able to do that, is able to make these kind of, you know, uh, intergenerational connections like this. And that, uh, and, and that it's, 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 you know, even if he had never seen us, it, we're still this real thing to him. And that's just the fact that he was, he was able to see it live and to be a part of it as it was happening, as the music was being made. Like, it sounds corny. I get it. But, you know, for me, this is what it's all about. Like, that, that's the kind of reason, that's the reason why we got back together. And, and that's, that's the reason why um, this is meaningful to us and why, you know, we'll never disrespect kind of the memory of, of what sin is or was because there are people who feel that way about it and that's